Well, why don't you turn your Bibles to Mark 3, and as you're turning, the children can be dismissed uh, Sunday school this morning next door. But we're almost done with Mark chapter 3, so make your way there, the end of Mark chapter 3. It's been said that the most important question uh, you will face in life is, who is Jesus? Meaning, whom do you believe Jesus to be? What do you make of him? Everyone knows that Jesus was someone of significance, and nearly all people have heard of Jesus. In fact, all of history is divided in half to the years before him, the years after him. So just who was this Jesus? And, and you'll find different answers. You might be surprised to know that Muslims believe in Jesus. They believe Jesus was one of the greatest prophets ever, behind Muhammad, of course. <clears throat> they believe he performed many great miracles. They even believe in his virgin birth. But they deny his crucifixion. It's not that they think the crucifixion never happened. It's just that they believe that Jesus was rescued by God and taken to heaven before he died on the cross. Instead, one of his disciples was given his likeness and died on the cross in his place. So whereas Christians believe Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for men, Muslims believe that a disciple died on the cross as a substitute for Jesus. They also do not believe Jesus was God. He was just a man, a created being like Adam. He was not the savior of the world and certainly not the son of God. Mormons also believe in Jesus. They affirm his virgin birth, perfect life, miracles, death, and resurrection. They also believe that Jesus is the son of God, but they take this literally, that God is the literal biological father of Jesus. Jesus is the creation of God and his goddess wife. God has a body of flesh and bones, as does his wife, and together they produce spirit offspring in heaven who inhabit human bodies on earth. And Jesus was one of these spirit offspring, as was Lucifer, his spirit offspring brother, who is also a son of God. But Jesus, because of his moral life and good works, became divine, became a God, and all men have the potential to become gods, like Jesus became a God. Jews also believe in Jesus, but as you can guess, take a far more critical approach. To Jews, Jesus was just a man, maybe a good man, but actually definitely a a false teacher, and certainly not the Messiah. Jesus was not the Messiah because to them he did not fulfill messianic prophecies, he did not rebuild the third temple, he did not gather Israel back to the land, and did not establish world peace. The Messiah, they believe, when he comes, will be just a human, born of human parents, not semi-divine or divine, not the Son of God. And then you have atheists and non-religious people of all sorts, and some believe that Jesus didn't exist at all. He's just a figment of history's imagination. He never walked the earth. Others believe that he existed, but he was just a man. Maybe he was a political leader who led the people in revolt against Rome. Some think he was just a traveling teacher, a moral figure, a wise man. And some think that he was he was a magician or a con man, a huckster, who just tricked people to following his, his system. Like I said, you'll find many different opinions about Jesus. If you ask ten people, you just might get ten different responses. When you turn to the Bible, however, which is our source of information concerning Jesus, the the answer is always the same, and it's always crystal clear. There's no confusion in Scripture as to who Jesus was. In fact, four Gospels or testimonies were written to tell us 
just that fact. John chapter 20, verse 31, summarizes the goal of all of these Gospels. John 20, verse 31 says, But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And Mark, the Gospel that we're studying right now, is no exception, no different. In his very first verse of the whole letter, he lets us know just where he's going. He says, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so far in just these first three chapters, we've seen quite the testimony build affirming that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He's the divine Messiah. John the Baptist has testified of him. The demons have testified of him. His own words and works have testified of him, and even God the Father himself testified of him at his baptism. However, not all those around Jesus understood him or accepted who he was. As we near the end of Mark chapter 3 now, we encounter two groups of people who should have known Jesus better than anyone, but they didn't. If anyone should have recognized him for who he really was, it was these two groups of people, but neither of them do. The first group was his own family, his mother, his half-brothers, his sisters. Personally, they knew him better than any, but they thought he was a fanatic, that he was was just mad. The second group was the religious leaders, spiritually spiritually, They were the most qualified to identify the Messiah when he came. But they thought he was possessed by the devil. He was just a demon-inspired liar. The two groups that should have known him the most missed him. This is one of the, the ironic twists in the gospel. But as we see time and time again, even this is part of God's perfect plan for Christ's rejection, betrayal, and death on the cross was no accident. For now, though, we want to take a closer look at these two episodes at the end of Mark chapter 3. And to tell these, Mark uses the sandwich technique. It's like a story within a story. A tale of two events, they're very close in time, in topic, they're related. The center, the the meat of this sandwich, is another interaction with Christ and the religious leaders. Only this time, they're not questioning him anymore. They used to question his words, his works. Now they're just outright accusing him and attacking him in the worst way. Look at verse 22 of Mark chapter 3. The scribes came down from Jerusalem, were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. We're going to study this section, this, this meat, the meat of this passage next week. It's an extremely significant passage in the Gospels. It's like, it's like a hinge. Things are not the same after this happens. Not for Jesus, not for the religious leaders. Especially after they flirt with what Jesus calls the unforgivable sin. An eternal sin. We'll see that next week. As we learned last time, though, their rejection of Jesus only seals the deal that they are not fit to lead God's people. 
And so Jesus chooses a new 12 to lead this new family of God. Now, speaking of the family of God, though, this gets us to the, the outer layers, that the bread of this sandwich, which is the encounter of Jesus with his family. And this is the passage we're going to study this morning. You really would expect that of all people, even more so than the religious leaders, his own family would understand him, would, would identify who he really was. They would recognize him for, for being the son of God. I mean, they were with him for 30 years. How could they not? But we will find that, that they don't. How could this be? We'll see this in our passage this morning. But it is in this interaction of Jesus with his family that we find him redefining the true family of God. Who is in God's family? Who are his true children? The answer is in some ways shocking. It's shocking enough that the religious leaders... We're being kept outside of this new covenant people of God. But more so, we learn that many of the Messiah's own people would be excluded as well. Because membership in this family is not by blood. It's not by descent. Being a descendant of Abraham, that's not your magic ticket. That doesn't get you in the door. This is actually one of the huge scandals of the early church, a big stumbling block for the Jews. Yet this lesson on who comprises the true family of God comes from Jesus himself, and it's taught perhaps nowhere more powerfully than, than right here. We come to a text where Christ's own family was left on the outside, but his disciples were on the inside. And we come to learn that the spirit is thicker than blood. The spirit is thicker than blood. Jesus was closer to his own disciples than his own family. This begs the question that we aim to answer. Who is the true family of God? Who's, who's in? How does one become a child in this spiritual family? And that's the question we aim to answer this morning. Pretty simple. We're just going to make our way through our text verse by verse. And we're going to pick up where we left off last time. That's in Mark chapter 3. And look together now at verse 20 with me. Verse 20. And he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. It says here that Jesus came home. Technically in the Greek it says he came into a house Where is this? We don't know for sure. Perhaps in Capernaum, his new hometown. Jesus has already been gone on a Galilean preaching tour with his disciples. He's been teaching, healing by the lake. Eventually he escaped the crowds, went up on a mountain to pray all night. Then he came down and he chose 12 of his disciples to be the 12. After that, Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, But Mark, he's like the action gospel. He does not include the Sermon on the Mount. We pick things up right after that. Jesus is coming home after a long journey, a long preaching tour. He comes into this town, into this house, looking to get some rest, just some peace and quiet after all of this labor. Several times, Angel and I have had to make quick day trips down to L.A. just, just for the day. We leave before dawn, drive three hours to L.A., 
We're bouncing around all over town. It's pretty exhausting. Then we come home another three hours, only to get home by midnight. It's just, it makes for an exhausting day, and the best part is just getting home and, and getting to sleep in your own bed. You know that feeling after a long trip? Well, there would be no such rest for Jesus. As they get into this house, the crowd is already banging down the door. At this point, Jesus is still the local celebrity. They still love him. So when he and his disciples roll into town, it it doesn't take long for the crowd to build. They see him, and immediately the crowd just feeds on itself. You you know how this goes. If you're walking down the street, you see ten people gathered in a circle, and they're all looking at something. You're going to go check it out. Your curiosity just drives you to the crowd. Crowds just build themselves. And like a flash flood, this group of people have already made their way into this house, taking up every last space. There's no time to rest. There's no time even to eat. This crowd is formed by the 12, plus many other disciples. Only this crowd, they're not looking for a miracle. They want to hear Jesus teach. And and that's what he came for. How could he turn this crowd down? He came to preach the gospel of the kingdom, and they want to hear. So, once again, Jesus does not have time to eat because he must feed the crowds the word of God. Also remember, back then, <clears throat> there was no refrigerator. There was no pantry. If you wanted food, you, ha- you have to work for it. If you want something to eat, you've got to make it. If you want bread... You have to bake it. If you want meat, you've got to slaughter and prepare it. And food was work. Even if they had bread on hand, Jesus felt the need of the crowd too pressing to ignore. So we find him skipping another meal and just getting to business. Now, to some people, skipping meals like this is crazy. My mom did this. You know, growing up, my dad was a doctor. My mom was the manager of the, of the doctor's office. So they both were hardworking, and, but she would skip meals all the time at work just because, you know, too busy, too caught up with work, not hungry. And we always told her, like, that's crazy. Just, just take 15 minutes. Just eat something. If you're going to be working anyway, you might as well eat. You need the energy. But she would just skip meals. And it was all so, so crazy. Likewise, this behavior of Jesus seemed crazy to some people, notably his family. Now look at verse 21. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. For they were saying, he has lost his senses. This opening phrase here literally means those from the side of him. It's an idiom referring to your, your family, your kinsmen. And that's what it means here. This is talking about his family. Down in verse 31, we see his, his mother, his brothers formally introduced So it just confirms this is talking about the family of Jesus. His family shows up. Again, we don't know exactly where Jesus is at the moment. He could be in Capernaum, like I said, but he really could be in any Galilean town. Last we heard, his family lived in Nazareth, but they could have moved. We don't know. John chapter 2 mentions how after the wedding at Cana, his mother and his brothers accompanied him to Capernaum and stayed with him there. So did they move as well? Did they have a you know, summer beach house on the lake? I don't think so, but nonetheless, wherever Jesus is, his family's nearby. 
Given that Jesus was attracting these crowds of thousands of people, they were likely just checking it out, seeing what this commotion was all about. But when they heard what he was doing here in verse 21, they came to take custody of him because they thought he had lost his senses, which means they think he's gone mad. We would say he's out of his mind. They think he's acting crazy. That might seem strange to you or even startling. How could his family think he's crazy? How could anyone think he's crazy? Jesus certainly appeared to be in his right mind. In fact, he seems to be the most logical, rational, wise person ever. But it's not so much that they thought he was crazy in the sense of drooling all over himself and having a conversation with the tree. They thought he was crazy in the sense of being a religious fanatic. Just fanatical. Here's a guy, they thought, who gave up his life, his career as a carpenter. And now he's, he's traveling around, living on the road, no home, no possessions, no money. Then he gathers this ragtag group of nobodies together, some fishermen, a tax collector. They're following him around. Now he's attracting these crowds like a circus attraction. And the crowds, they were dangerous. Last time we learned how the crowds were pressing in on him so much, he was in danger of, of actually being trampled to death. Now he's neglecting his health because of these crowds. He's losing sleep, skipping meals. This lifestyle is going to be the death of him, they thought. I mean, he's just he's too radical. His zeal is just too much, this lifestyle he's chosen. Also, Remember, to the Jews, a lot of what Jesus said just, just sounded crazy. They didn't understand what he was saying. And furthermore, he, he comes and he opposes the religious establishment. It's like going up against the mob. It's not a safe or sane thing to do. Only crazy people do that. I mean, why is he barking up that tree? Just leave it alone. These people are dangerous. They could come after you. They could come after your family. Already, the Pharisees had launched an official investigation from Jerusalem into Jesus. And they had already also launched a smear campaign against Jesus. And so to his family, enough, enough is enough. I mean, this lifestyle he's chosen, it's going to get him killed. It's just, this is getting too far. It's crazy. And although Jesus would not be the last person to be considered insane because of their great passion, and zeal for the Lord. Later on, Paul, the apostle, would be standing before King Agrippa, and he's defending the faith. He's testifying about Jesus. And the king interrupted him and said this, Acts chapter 26, verse 24. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. In reality, we know Paul was far from mad, but the world is so upside down that the truth seems crazy. This guy dies on the cross and he's the savior. And to the world, right seems wrong, black seems white. Also later, Jesus himself would be accused again of of being crazy. John chapter 10, verse 20, many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? You see, there's this dispute among the Jews as to who Jesus was. And they were asking, you know, is he the real deal or not? Is, is he the real deal? 
And repeatedly, you have these two accusations thrown at him. I mean, how do you explain what he says? Well, he's just crazy. How do you explain what he does? That the power, he's got a demon. So to his detractors, that's, that's how they explained it away. But some, some of the Jews realized just how illogical that was. Like, wait a second. Do crazy demon-possessed people really open the eyes of the blind and do all of this good and heal people? doesn't seem like it. And so many came to believe that, you know, maybe he's telling the truth. Maybe he's not so crazy. But I tell you what, if you follow Jesus, the world will think you're crazy. Have you ever been considered a religious fanatic? And if not, why not? What's wrong with you? Because you should. Now, I know that word has such a negative connotation. We think of the fanatic as the guy who blows himself up, or blows up the abortion clinic, something like that. And those are obviously very wrong. But the point I'm making is that following Jesus, being his disciple, is a radical, fanatical thing. He calls you to radically deny yourself and to pick up your cross daily and to follow him. What do you think he's telling you to do when he says, pick up your cross? That's the instrument of your death. It's like today we'd say, pick up your electric chair. But as you die to your old self, you find new life in Christ. And he calls you to radically leave behind all of your old ways and to follow him, just to go where he goes, live as he lives. You can't do that 50%. That's an all or nothing proposition. It's a fanatical thing. When I was in high school, there's this guy who walked by the school every day and people just thought he was crazy. He was you know, outside the, the chain link fence on the sidewalk and during lunch or gym, you saw this guy walk by and he was carrying a real 10-foot cross on his shoulder, just walking by every day. Now, technically he was cheating because it had a little wheel on the bottom. <laughs> but nonetheless, every day he walked by with the cross and every day people just thought he was crazy. And I wasn't a believer at the time. I thought he was crazy. Now, I don't know anything about this guy, but even if you don't walk around carrying a little cro- literal cross, The world's going to think you're crazy just for following the way of Jesus. To the world, the way of Jesus doesn't make sense. Following Jesus, it comes with these changes. When you're born again, you change. You have new ideals, new desires, new goals in life, new motivations. And they're different than the world. They're, They're crazy to the world. What does the world live for? What do you live for? Money, success, fame, pleasure, entertainment, family. All that stuff. That's what the world lives for. That's what motivates them. Let's say at your job, you have this chance for a promotion, and it comes with a pay increase of $30,000. And that, that's, that's amazing. But the only way you're going to get the, the promotion is by lying through your teeth. And so those in the world, they jump on that. Oh, of course I'll do that. I mean, that because they, they want the money. They're living for the money. They, they will do what they need to get it. But the Christian, hopefully, would refuse because you don't live for that. That's not a part of, of Christ's way. His way is, is the other direction. 
to the world turning down $30,000. That's crazy. Only a religious nut would do that. But it's better to be crazy with Christ than condemned with the world. My parents and Angel's parents have always been very loving and supportive of, of what I've, I've been doing. But I know they thought and perhaps still think that I'm crazy for doing what I'm doing. You know, I left behind my college degree and my engineering job to go to seminary and become a pastor. It's like, what? Now, I'm sure they thought it was nice when I became a Christian in college. I started attending church. Oh, that's nice. You know, whatever works for you. But then to leave it all behind and enter the ministry and actually do this? I mean, that, that's crazy. It must be brainwashed. But even if you don't go to seminary, following Jesus should still it should be your life. The world will call that insane, but wear that as a badge of honor because a slave is not greater than his master. They call Jesus insane. The same will happen to you if you follow him. Only we are, we are happy to be labeled with whatever he is. And then when you look at the world, I mean, come on, you see all the, the folly, the foolishness in the world. That's where the real craziness lies. And at least to me, it's crystal clear. There's no more sane place to be than with Jesus. Anyway, here we are now. For several reasons, his family members show up thinking he's gone too far. So they come to take custody of him. This word means to to seize someone, to arrest them, even by force. They were ready to take him home, even against his will. And they're, they're going to make him rest, get him out of the spotlight, keep him from, from killing himself with this lifestyle, get him away from the crowd. Now, let's jump down to verse 31. Remember the sandwich? We pick things up down in verse 31 where he resumes this, this story. Verse 31. Then his mother and his brothers arrived. And standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Again, we have Jesus in this house. It's packed, filled with disciples. There's not a a square inch free. They're all sitting around. Jesus is at the center. The twelve are close by. This crowd is spilling out the door. Then his family shows up. They know there's no way they're getting inside. So they're forced to play an ancient game of telephone and they relay this message to Jesus on the inside. You can picture one person just whispering to the next. Finally, word gets to Jesus and he's interrupted. Someone says, behold. This is a word of interjection, an interruption, a call to attention. Behold, your your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Here, we are formally introduced to the family of Jesus for the first time in Mark. The first time in Mark. We see first that there's Mary. We all know Mary. By the way, the last mention of Joseph in the Bible was when Jesus was 12 at the temple. After that, he's gone forever. Almost certainly he died somewhere along the line and he's no longer around. Mary was still around. Scripture, let me say this, is very clear that Mary 
did not think that her son was crazy. That's very clear. She believed in him. The angel revealed to her that the son would be the son of God. She knew that. She believed that. And more so, more than anyone, she knew this was a virgin birth. (laughs) She understood that as well. Mary treasured in her heart every piece of new revelation concerning her son. And granted, she didn't have the whole picture. She didn't know that he had to die on the cross yet. She didn't get that. But she knew much about Jesus and she believed. Certainly, she's concerned for his health, for his well-being, that he doesn't skip meals. The brothers of Jesus, however, are a different story. Jesus did have several brothers and sisters. Mark chapter 6, verse 3 says this very clearly. The people said of him, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? His sisters are barely mentioned because most likely they got married, and then they're bound to their husband. and They're not free to follow Jesus around like his brothers. But his brothers, they show up more often. But scripture is very clear that early on, they did not believe in him. John chapter 7 verse 5 says that not even his brothers were believing in him. Now let me make a few notes here. First, sorry to Catholics, but the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary is patently unbiblical. What that means is Catholics believe that Mary was a virgin before during and after the birth of Jesus. Just a perpetual virgin. But scripture is crystal clear on this, and that is not the case. Luke chapter 2, verse 7 says that Jesus was the firstborn. Matthew chapter 1, verse 25 says that Joseph kept Mary a virgin until after Jesus was born. And then here we see several passages introducing us to the brothers and sisters of Jesus. Of course, they were all half-brothers and sisters related only through Mary. It wasn't until centuries later that the Catholic Church just created this idea that Mary was a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Jesus. They claim that these other siblings came from Joseph, a previous marriage of Joseph. Where do you find that? Nowhere in the Bible. It's just out of thin air. They choose the tradition of men over the the clear word of God. Jesus did have several brothers and sisters, half-brothers and sisters. And these are the ones here who think he's lost it. It's his brothers who think he's got a screw loose. Mary, I'm sure, is concerned for the health and well-being of her son. She probably thinks this lifestyle is going to be the death of him and, and doesn't want that, doesn't get that yet. But his brothers surely think He's a religious nut. And people wonder, how could this be? They they grew up with him. Wouldn't they recognize Jesus as divine? But to me, this makes perfect sense. Growing up, Jesus didn't perform any miracles. None. But he was perfect. His brothers, not so much. They were sinners. Jesus was righteous. His actions toward them, his reactions were always righteous. Theirs, always unrighteous. So you can see the grind here, the conflict. The light hates the darkness. Or rather, I should say, the darkness hates the light and is confronted by the light. I bet you they hated him growing up. 
Jesus never got in trouble. Never needed a spanking. Never disobeyed. He's like the goody two-shoes to them. He would never return anger for anger to them. Never hit them. Never taunted them. They would try and rile him up and they only got back perfect righteousness. Do you know how infuriating that is to a kid? And then at the same time, he was so close to God, even at the age of 12, in the temple learning. He had this zeal for God. At the very best, they thought, there's Jesus. He's, he's our kind of black sheep. He's the weirdo. He's a religious nut in the family. He would have been the outcast to those brothers and sisters, for sure. Jesus did not reveal his identity, power, or mission until his official ministry. First miracle, wedding of Cana turning water to wine. That was it. So to me, it makes perfect sense that his brothers, being unsaved sinners, did not believe in him. Why would they? Nevertheless, here we are. His family, they're outside this house. They're calling for him to come outside. They want to take him away. This crowd relays the message to Jesus, and they fully expect him to respond they expect Jesus to defer to his family, get up and, and leave. I mean, that, that's what the culture did. Your family calls, you answer. So that makes his response all the more shocking. Let's look at verses 33 and 34 now. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and brother and sister. And this really is a, a shocking statement. Jesus was turning down his own family. He was leaving them outside. We don't know if he, if he later got up and went outside and spoke to them. That may be the case. But the force of his teaching is very clear. He's teaching that the spirit is thicker than blood. His spiritual kinsmen are closer to him than his own physical kinsmen. That was new. For Jews, that was radical. Jesus is saying that he had closer ties to his heavenly father and spiritual family than his own physical family. His mother and brothers, they thought they had this special claim on Jesus being his family. But in reality, his disciples had a special claim on Jesus. He asks, who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looks around the room. Matthew 12 adds that he reaches out his hand toward his disciples. And he says, behold. Now Jesus says, behold, meaning pay attention to this. These ones, these disciples, they are my mother and my brothers, meaning they're my true family. Jesus is revealing this is it. This is the family of God. This is the true family of God. And who is it? Who makes up the true family of God. He says first in verse 35, whoever. Whoever. Let me just pause and make a note here. First, note how inclusive the family of God is. It's open to anyone. Nobody is kept out of the family of God based on their background. 
All colors are accepted. Black, white, in between. All ages are accepted. Old, young, doesn't matter. Both genders are accepted. Male, female, they can both make it in. All social statuses are accepted. Rich or poor, slave or free, educated or not, doesn't matter. Even all nationalities are accepted. Jew and Gentile. It doesn't matter what language you speak, where you were born, what, what culture you come from, anyone. He says, whoever can be a part of the family of God. It's very inclusive. But at the same time, it is extremely exclusive. Because he adds, well, there is, there is one requirement. And it's a very exclusive requirement. Verse 35, whoever does the will of God. He is my brother and sister and mother. That's the real kicker. See, this is how God defines his family. Whoever does the will of God. And just what is the will of God for you? For me, it is that you would believe. John chapter 6, verse 40. Listen to this. John chapter 6, verse 40. Jesus said, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. There you have it. His will is that you would behold the Son and believe in him. You do that, you're part of the family. You're not saved by obedience to the law, by good works. I trust you know that. Do not confuse doing the will of God with works, because it's not. God's will, like John 6.40 says, is that you would believe and accept his provision for your salvation. Believing in Christ, following him, becoming his disciple, this is the path to salvation. It results in God adopting you, Romans chapter 8. He makes you his child. You're accepted into the family of God. Salvation, we know, it's not of works. However, the one who is a true disciple, who truly believes, he or she will obey. We know that as well. You're not saved by works, but if you are saved, you will abound in good works. And your resulting works make it very clear whether or not you belong to God's family. Can I remind you of this passage? A couple years ago, we preached through the book of Titus. This is such a, a, an amazing passage. Turn to Titus chapter 3. I just want you to see this for yourself to remember this passage. It's so helpful. Turn with me to Titus chapter 3, and, and you can leave Mark behind. We'll, we'll finish up, but Titus chapter 3. This is it. This is, this is the, the gospel in a nutshell, so to speak. Such a valuable passage. I just want to read and let it speak for itself. Titus chapter 3, and we're going to be reading verses 3 through 8. Notice first our past, verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. 
That that's us, our past. But, verse 4, but when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Notice, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. I mean, how clear is that? But according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And that that's it. This is who we once were. And God saved us, not based on deeds, but by our faith in him, by his grace. And then look at verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that, so that those who have believed will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. He says, now, and speak this truth to Titus, because those who believe, they need to be careful to engage in good deeds. You're not saved by the good deeds, but if you're truly saved, you're going to bear that fruit and abundantly. So, thinking back to Jesus with his family, his family is standing outside. His disciples, they're sitting inside. And the lesson here, it's just driven home in a very powerful way. Who really belongs to Jesus? Who's his family? And the answer is those who follow him, those who are his disciples, those who do the will of God. And two significant lessons are readily drawn from what Jesus teaches here. First, this was a huge lesson for the Jews of his day. Because to them, to the Jews, who was in Christ's family? The the Jews. And only the Jews. Gentiles were out. They claimed a prior special relationship to God and his kingdom just because they were physical descendants of Abraham. Remember that? This is why to them, family was everything. They kept genealogies so that they could trace themselves back to Abraham because that was their ticket in. That was proof that they were in the family of God. They were descendants of Abraham. Of course, this was one of the great stumbling blocks for the Jews. And Jesus tore down this notion. No, sorry. Being Abraham's physical descendant is not your ticket in. Because... Romans chapter 9, verse 6. They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And as verse 10 says, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. Jesus made this point. Paul drove it home in Romans 9 through 11. Just because you're a descendant of Abraham doesn't mean you're in the family of God. Justification is not by birth. It's by faith. And so for the Jews of this day, this was a huge lesson. Some of them learned and came to realize, I need personal faith and repentance myself. Others, they stumbled over this stumbling block. There's a second lesson here to learn, and it really hits home today more so. Being in the family of God, being saved, it is based on an inner spiritual relationship, not outside circumstances. 
being saved, it's based on an inner spiritual relationship, not outside circumstances. You could say this. You want a one-liner? God does not have any grandchildren. God doesn't have any grandchildren. He only has children. And what does that mean? It means that just because your parents are Christians doesn't mean you're saved. doesn't mean anything for you just because your parents are Christians. God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children. You must stand by your own faith in Christ, your own commitment to him. Being raised in a Christian home, that is not your ticket in. We could also say this. Going to church is not your ticket in. Being in God's family is not caught through osmosis. You can't just hang out, hang around the family of God long enough and think, oh, God will eventually let me in because I'm with them so much. No. You must repent and believe on your own. You must give up everything and follow Jesus for life. Confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, and then walk accordingly. This really gets to the question, what are you relying on for your salvation? What do you depend on for your salvation? Is it your family? Your parents? Your lineage? Is it your church attendance? Your giving statement? If your answer, if your answer is anything external, it's, it's wrong. You must make an internal commitment to the Lord to save you from your sins by his work on the cross and to bring you to new life just by his mercy, by his grace. At the time of this passage, the brothers of Jesus did not have this faith. And so they were left outside. And his disciples, though, they were inside. And with Jesus, it's all about being inside. And on your inside, you must Commit to Him, to be with Him. Now, just to wrap it up, I don't want to leave you hanging. There is a happy ending here when it comes to the brothers of Jesus. Because in the plan of God, although they did not believe in Him during His life, they did come to salvation after His death. Don't confuse what Jesus says here with the fact that He hates His family. No, He loves His family very much. While He was hanging on the cross suffering, He had the fortitude and compassion to entrust Mary, his mother, who was watching him die into the hands of John to care for her. And regarding his brothers, we don't see them at the cross, but we see them after the cross, after Jesus had died, risen, and ascended. The disciples are huddled up in the upper room, worshiping Christ, and his brothers and Mary are there with them, worshiping Christ. Acts chapter 1 verse 14 says, These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. They came to know and believe in their brother as the Savior. Beyond that, we know a little bit more about two of Jesus' brothers. James went on to become an apostle having seen the risen Lord. And then Paul in Galatians mentions how James, along with Peter and John, was one of the the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. This is the same James who wrote the letter of James in the Bible. 
same goes for Jude and the letter of Jude. That was also the brother of James, the half-brother of Jesus. When you read James and Jude, what's striking is that neither of them ever used the fact that they were half-brothers of Jesus as a badge of honor. Like it it made them special or or got them to heaven. They, They never say it. In fact, they both open their letters in the same way. Listen to this. Let me read the, the first verses of both. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. See, for Jude, he thought of James as his brother and Jesus, well, not as his brother, as his master. They both realized that to be in God's family, even being related to Jesus was not enough. Do you, do you get that? That's not even enough. He must become your master. We said at the beginning, the most important question you're going to face in life is, who is Jesus? Who do you make Jesus out to be? What, what do you believe of him? Not quite true. Many people say they believe in Jesus. Yeah, he's a son of God, Sure. It's just, it's all in their head though. It's just an intellectual assent. I think a better question is this. How do you respond to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God? Will you follow? Will you obey? Will you do the will of God and believe on Him? Because that's the only way into the true family of God. For whoever does the will of God. He is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we look upon you now in faith, confessing and believing that you are the Christ, the Son of God. We often see these reminders in the Gospel just telling us of who you are and we need these often. We need ever before us the reality of of you, of salvation of the new birth, that we might follow you in your way. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. We thank you for inviting us to the inside. Lord, that comes one way and one way only, by denying ourselves, picking up our cross and following the Savior. May we all here make that confession in Jesus. I pray you, you open the eyes of those here who do not know you to humble themselves and come to that, that point of faith in Christ where they are all in into following him. We are delighted to be in your family. We know we don't deserve to be called children of God, but yet such we are. We thank you for that. Help us not to live in a manner worthy of of God's family and to honor you uh, with with being one of yours. The world may think we are crazy, but we know uh, there's no saner place to be than in the family of God with Jesus, following him together with the saints. So we do that now and we commit ourselves to you. In your name we pray. Amen.